I read a book um, kind of on the concept of grace. It was very nerdy. It was like all about like grace in the ancient world and, and whatever. And one of the, it was, there was a whole chapter on um, the anthropology of gift giving. And I thought that was like a really interesting like um, thing to think about. I'd never really thought about it, but there are all, are all these like social dynamics that come with when we give gifts to each other and it's like super fascinating. And it kind of made me think about how like a lot of our interactions are like that. We have um, different like social dynamics that come with different things like all, all the time, right? So like for example, recently Julie and I were on a, we were on a long trip and we were driving back home and it was some bad weather and we were going to stop in a town on the drive that we weren't planning to. And we have some really, really good friends that live in that town. And so, you know, we were not planning to stop there and we definitely didn't want to ask them, hey, can we stay with you? Um, but we did let them know we were going to probably, you know, stop um, in, in this town on the way home. And when we told them that, it's like 7, 7.30 at night and they were like, there is no way you are paying for a hotel. You are staying with us and they wouldn't take no for an answer. Um, and we kind of felt like, you know, oh, we can't really say no back to this, right? There's a kind of an obligation both ways. They felt an obligation to um, let us stay with them, and we felt an obligation to accept. And when you think about that, just the, the social obligation going on there, I think it's a really good one that we have. But it says a friend coming to town shouldn't have to pay to stay somewhere else. We feel like that is not not okay. And so we feel this obligation or expectation on ourselves to maybe even quickly transform ourselves and our house into hosts for those people um, and kind of scrap our plans to accommodate um, guests. I did a little bit of um, kind of just noodling around online and I found nine different principles and accepted practices that often characterize a good anthropology of hosting someone in your home. So I'm not going to read them all, but it includes things like this. Hospitality and warmth, right? So a good host is expected to extend hospitality and create a warm environment and welcome, warm and welcoming environment for their guests. Another is engagement and social interaction. A good host engages with their guests. They show interest in their experiences and their perspectives and backgrounds. Flexibility and adaptability. Um, a host should be flexible and adaptable to unexpected situations or changes in plans. And then appreciation and gratitude, right? A host expresses uh, appreciation and gratitude for their guests' presence and company, okay? We all know when someone is going to dwell with us and we're going to host them, we're supposed to take on a sort of like responsibility and seriousness with it. We just kind of all know that, right? We see it as a, as a privilege and a chance to sort of, you know, bless somebody and we cherish the opportunity. So we're, we're usually happy to do it, okay? Here's what I want you to do real quick. I want you to turn and talk to the people in your team. Introduce yourselves if you don't know each other real quick and just talk about ways when, you know, if you ever hosted someone at your place, like what is just some small things you do uh, that changes your normal routine or behavior for the good of that person, okay? So take, take just a couple minutes to do that. All right, let's bring it back in here. So here's why I bring all this stuff up. Um, we're going to talk today about God dwelling in our midst. That's kind of what the, the passage is about. And it's kind of getting us to really reflect on the idea that on a regular basis, we are hosting God in our presence as a church, as Res City. Um, and so um, this is a passage we, 
we, you know, we've been going through this sermon series in 1 Corinthians, and, and we, we skipped over it a couple weeks ago so that we could spend this weekend just kind of really deeply reflecting on it. And, you know, 1 Corinthians, as we've kind of been going through it, I hope you're seeing, it's a letter that I think really helps us to reflect on and internalize who we are, both individually, but also as a group of people. I, and so today, I really want to focus in on, like, what is, who are we? What are we when we gather together? Okay? And it's a little bit more abstract, it's a little more kind of teachy, um, but I think it really helps set a good vision for the church, for what the church is, that it's really compelling. I know for me, this has been, like we've been going through some passages that are really like fundamental for me and how I think about what it is I'm doing as a pastor and as a, you know, as we planted Red City, like kind of what is that supposed to look like? These are really foundational passages for me. And I think it's really cool because it encourages us to use our imagination and like bring together ideas in really surprising ways. Um, that is really, really cool. Okay. So that idea or that passage is, is 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17 where Paul says, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So this morning, I want to kind of break this passage down into, the. it's got four phrases really to it. And we're going to kind of go just walk through it one by one, all through, through all four of them, and really unpack and build kind of like a theology, really, of God's dwelling place. And as we go, we'll, we'll kind of pause, and we'll give you and your groups a chance to discuss different things, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. That's kind of what this morning is going to look like, okay? So let's get into it here. The first, um, the first one is you together are God's temple. You together are God's temple. Now, I think we could call this like Paul's theology of the local church, really. When we think about individual congregations of, of Jesus followers, right? And there's, there's, there's tons of them, like all over the place. When they gather together, I think we're supposed to think of them as spaces that host God's presence, his glorious attributes, in the way that the Jerusalem temple did. And we'll really talk about that today, okay? Um, but a couple of observations, I think, off the bat, before we jump in, okay? Things I want you to recognize, okay? First of all, is notice that Paul says, you together are, are, are God's temple. Now, maybe you've heard this passage before, and you've heard someone quote it, and as before they're going to go like work out or something, right? Or they're, they're planning to eat healthier because they're like, well, you know, I'm a temple, and so like I need to like take care of my body. That's kind of how this, this passage gets talked about a lot of times. Now, that's great. I think you guys should all definitely eat healthy and work out and stuff, but don't do it because of this passage, <laughs> um, okay? That's not what this is about. The idea is that you, we together are God's temple, right? Now, Paul does talk about our bodies as temples in chapter 6, and we'll get to that and what the context is of it, you know, later on in, in 1 Corinthians, but I don't want you to, I want you to, to get you out of that mindset. This is totally about an, it's an us thing, not a you thing or a me thing, Okay? There's something about all of us together that makes us a reality. And that's what I want, where I want your headspace to be in as we start. Okay, the second observation I want to have about this for us is just to acknowledge the difficulty with a passage like this, okay? Because we're 21st century people, and I, I would hope, actually, that as you hear this, you're like, okay, cool, but I don't really have no clue what a temple is or, like, what the significance of that means, Okay, if you're if you're Paul or if you're the original audience listening to this, um, you know you 
this means a lot to you because the Jerusalem temple has a central significance for you as a people, of Jewish people, right? And you could say in some ways it really defined who the Jewish people uh, were, but that's been totally lost for us over the centuries and the, the, the cultural gap, right? So we don't really know what a temple is. And so when we read a passage like this, we are like, I don't know how to live as a temple. I don't know how to think of myself as being part of a temple um, that God has built up. So what I, I, I want you to do here again is, is turn and talk to your groups for about four minutes or so and talk to each other. When you think of a temple or, or the temple, what comes to your mind? Okay, so go ahead and do that. Oh, what are some things, just shout out, things you guys talked about in your groups when you think of temples, what comes to mind? Nothing. Okay, well, that actually proves my point a little bit, I guess. Um, so, okay, so <clears throat> in the ancient world, temples were everywhere. Um, it wasn't just a Israel thing. So, like, you could go to just about any city, like, if it was large enough, and they'd have some temples probably multiple to multiple different deities. So when the Corinthians heard this, like they likely were more familiar with temples in Corinth than they would have been with the Jerusalem one. Okay, So there are definitely some crossover. But the Jerusalem temple, the one that, that Paul is, is drawing you us back to, is unique in a lot of different ways. So first of all, the Jerusalem temple is the center of life in ancient Israel. This is like when you, it, it really everything kind of revolves around it. Um, and it's, uh, there's only one of them, okay? So you wouldn't go to other cities in Judea and find other temples. There was just the one, as opposed to, like, if you, you know, went to a lot of different big cities, there would be a lot of different temples to Zeus or Aphrodite or whoever, right? They'd have a lot of different temples in a lot of different cities, but in Jerusalem was the only temple that was for God, for the, the God of, of, of the people of Israel, um, and that's because their God only would dwell in one place, okay? And that's really important that we'll get to here in just a second. Um, the Jerusalem temple, okay, there were actually two of them. One got destroyed and then it got rebuilt um, about 100 or so years later. It had kind of multiple layers to it um, where different groups could enter at different times, um, and different kind of cultic activities took place. But in the very center of it was this place called the Holy of Holies. And this was the place where the actual presence of God dwelled. Um, and it, it's because of this that the temple was actually thought of as a house for God. Okay? It's a house where God's presence dwells. That's the first really important thing about what the temple is. Right? So in, in Hebrew, actually, there is no word for temple. When you read the word temple in your Bible, you're actually just reading uh, kind of a regular Hebrew word for house. And that would, you know, that could be referred to like as a king's palace, like as, as his house or something. And in Greek, in, you know, in Greek, I suppose, when Paul's writing this, he's using a special Greek word. But in Hebrew, there is no word for temple. It is supposed to be thought of as a house where God's presence is dwelling, right? So, and, and to give you a picture of what that's supposed to look like, in Leviticus 26, 11 to 12, God sort of casts vision for what it's going to be like for him to dwell in a place with his people. So he's talking here specifically about something called the tabernacle, which is a sort of proto-temple, like, and it's a mobile tent, but it becomes the, the actual temple in Jerusalem eventually. So God says, I will live among you. I will not despise you. I will walk among you, 
I will be your God and you will be my people. And so there's a sort of intimacy, kind of like the Garden of Eden, right? If you are familiar with that, that passage where it talks about God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, right? That's kind of what you're supposed to think of as the temple, a place where God lives, where he is present with his people, right? And so even though, yes, God is he's everywhere, he's omnipresent, right? He can't be contained in a building. And, and the people of Israel knew that they would say that. There was this idea, this understanding that God has picked a spot for his, pl- his place, for, sorry, his, his, uh, to place his glory or his presence in a special sense. It's like a home address where people would know where to reach him, right? And it's not like he can't be other places, but you live in a house and people know if they need to get a hold of you, they send mail to your home address, right? So when it says that God resides in his house, it means he's living with the people of Israel. And he's kind of turning the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the other people there, into hosts, in a sense. All right? So a, a couple of, of things about what this would bring to the people who lived in Israel and Jerusalem. Okay? First of all, stability. And secondly, identity. Okay? So first of all, stability. Imagine your, your next-door neighbor is a police officer. Okay? And you would think, like, if there's any disturbance in your neighborhood, like, if, if someone comes in and, you know, you're starting to feel unsafe because of something that's going on in your neighborhood, you would, th- if your neighbor is a cop, you would feel more comfortable because you'd be like, well, they can go take care of it. I feel, like, more stable knowing that someone who has the ability to do something about this can, and can manage it, right? That's kind of like that, what it is with Israel. So, like, there are points in their history where, the city is surrounded by enemies, and they're ready to destroy the city, but they feel safe because God is in their presence, and they feel like God's going to protect the city because he lives here too, okay? No matter how crazy things get, God dwells here, and that, that's our hope when things kind of go sideways, all right? And secondly, identity, okay? So everyone knows the God of all the earth has chosen to live here, and that is really significant for who you think of as, like, a Jewish person who also lives in Jerusalem or Judea, right? So think about it like this. So Julie's from Green Bay, and one of the most famous Green Bay Packer fans out there is Lil Wayne, the rapper. And when I first, Julie knows where I'm going with this, when I first started dating Julie, she told me about an urban legend that Lil Wayne lived in Green Bay. He like had picked a mansion out and decided to live in Green Bay. And I was like, there's no way that Lil Wayne chose Green Bay to live in. No offense to Green Bay. But um, Julie was like, I don't know. It's like, it's a thing. A lot of people think this. So I tried to get to the bottom of it. I've tried to look into this. I've asked a lot of people. And I'm pretty sure Lil Wayne does not live in Green Bay. Okay. But let's imagine he did. Okay. There's a sense of pride in knowing that this famous person has chosen our city of all the cities in the world to dwell in right? Instead of anywhere else. So if you live in Green Bay and you know Lil Wayne lives a few blocks over, you're kind of like, man, this guy is a celebrity. He's, he goes all over the place, but when he chooses to have a home, he's chosen the place I live. And that's pretty cool. That gives me some identity to know that this important person has chosen to live in my midst or my presence. Okay, That's kind of how the temple operates for a Jewish person, is knowing Someone far greater than Lil Wayne is choosing to make his residence um, in, in um, our city, okay? Now, because of this, there's the, the temple becomes a kind of point of overlap or a link between heaven and earth, okay? So, you know, we tend to think a lot of times of like heaven 
as like the spiritual place and earth as this physical place. And they can't really overlap because they're different types of existence or something. But that's really not how ancient people would have thought. They would have seen the temple as this sort of overlap point, right? Like an event diagram, which you got on the screen right here, where you have heaven and you have earth, but the temple is the place where the two overlap. It's kind of like a portal where God's presence lives, where heaven is on earth, right? And so when we play the, pray the Lord's Prayer, think about what we're praying. We're asking for God's uh, kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're actually asking for the presence of the temple to extend out and to kind of become part of like the, the day-to-day life, the day-to-day stuff that we're doing. We're asking for the temple to kind of be part of that, right? Because in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, is the place where God's will is done, where um, his, his kingdom has come and it's on earth as in heaven, okay? So that's kind of what the temple is supposed to be. And so, you know, throughout the Old Testament, there's these great scenes where God's presence would move into a place, um, like when he comes to into the temple or to Sinai. It's like usually got fire and great clouds. But if you're familiar with the scene in Acts 2 at Pentecost, where tongues of fire and a great rushing wind kind of fill the space, we're supposed to think of that and understand it as a place, as a time where God's presence is coming to dwell in his new temple. That's what's going on in Pentecost, or at least one of the things. All right, so that's how Paul can say this. He can say, um, this is, uh, 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 you have become the temple where God's presence dwells. And that's a really, really, really important thing, okay? So another thing about temple that's important is it's a sacred space, okay? So there's this sort of understanding and weight that people were supposed to have because this is where God lives, right? And again, think about it like you're hosting somebody, okay? When you're hosting someone, you're taking your house, which is like a normal thing to you, and you're, you're transforming it into something special and not normal, right? Because someone is living there, right? So you do everything differently than you normally would. You can't sort of treat the space as just normal, right? So like you prepare before they come. You clean the place up. You vacuum it. You sweep it. You do the dishes. You organize things that were kind of just laying in a heap out. It's like you clean the bathrooms. You empty the garbages. So you do all sorts of things to prepare the space so that it's special. It's set apart. Um, and when, when the person, your guest is, is dwelling with you, Um, you're going to sort of, everything you do is going to reflect that. This is not a normal, like a normal thing, right? So if you make coffee, you make coffee for two and you offer it up to the person staying with you. Um, if you, you know, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe you, you'd close the door when you go to the bathroom at home when you're by yourself. But like when someone's at your house, you are not going to go to the bathroom with the door open, right? You're going to close the door. You're going to make the space special. You're going to think about how, you know, the space you're in is not normal. It's been transformed into something special because of who is staying with me, right? And the temple is like this. It's a cherished and set-apart space, right? It's a place that sort of refused to be compromised by quote-unquote normal, which you would call impurity. Um, And it's a space that could never be normal or impure because of who was dwelling in it. Right? That's kind of a big part of what is going on with the temple. And a word for that that we could call is like countercultural. Right? It's kind of creating a new culture in the middle of an existing one. Right? It's like a microcosm that is unique and different. Where in this space, everything is sort of dedicated to God and revolving around him. Right? It, it's sacred. And they would do all sorts of, we don't need to get in all the different things that they would do in the temple to keep that. That's what part of, partly what the sacrifices that happened there were for. Or using things like oil, um, 
or just the construction of the temple itself, okay? But the temple operates as a sort of counterculture to the world around it, okay? And the last thing I want to talk about as to what makes the temple sort of unique or special is it's actually a center for flourishing in the city, okay? So this is kind of interesting. We'll spend a, a minute on this, but the temple had other functions too. So, for example, this is a place you could kind of get some of your groceries, right? Um, uh, one, one scholar writes, um, the temple also included, for that matter, the main slaughterhouse and the butcher's guild, Butchery was one of the main skills a priest had to possess, right? Because if you do an animal sacrifice, you have a bunch of the animal that's, well, that you haven't sacrificed, and so it would be butchered, and you could go buy the meat there, right? So it's a place where you can go get food. Um, it also kind of operated as like a town square. There's a big courtyard where people gathered, and a lot of business could take place, or connections could be made. Um, and so it was a space that drew people together, Kind of it, kind of as a bit of a, a magnet to draw people together for their flourishing, right? So the idea is this: the place where God dwelled with His people also contributed to the wider human network around it, and so not supposed to be removed from the world, but actually be a, a space that's in the world to kind of bless it as it goes out. Okay. Now I, I could say more, but these are kind of some some big ideas to understand the temple, and so I think. The claim that Paul's making is that the church is supposed to embody all these functions that we just talked about. That's what the church is supposed to be. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to take some time in your groups and I want you to talk about how does or how can the church embody these kinds of elements today, right? I'm going to have them on the screen. You should have them in your um, packet as well. But some of these things we just talked about, it's a place of stability with the knowledge that God is there. It brings identity to the hosts. It's a house for God where he lives, where he dwells. It's an overlap where God's royal will is done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a sacred and countercultural space, and it contributes to the flourishing of the world around it. Okay, so talk in your groups a little bit about how does the church fulfill the, in ways you can think that the church fulfills these functions, the church being like a, a local body of gathered people, and how can the church do it. You think, go ahead and think outside the box a little bit too, okay? I'll give you a little bit more time to talk about this one. All right, guys, I'm going to draw us back together again here. Um, I hope you guys had some good conversation on that one. Um, <clears throat> let's, uh, let's move into the uh, next one here. So the second phrase that Paul uses um, when talking to the Corinthians about this uh, being true for them is that this, he says, the Spirit of God lives in you. The Spirit of God lives in you, okay? Lives, dwells in you, okay? That kind of language of, of dwelling, of hosting, of home that we talked about at the temple. Um, now, in the church, I think we can definitely take this for granted sometimes, right? God lives with us. Um, but it wasn't always the expectation that God's Spirit would uh, dwell with his people, um, okay? Uh, the God's spirit will come upon people in the time of the temple, in, you know, when the temple is a physical space um, for special situations, right? To help people, like, fight a battle, to prophesy, to lead well, or give wisdom, kind of different stuff like that. The spirit would sometimes come on people to, like, help them to do this task, but God's presence didn't, we didn't, they didn't think of God's spirit or presence dwelling with them like they did in the temple, right? 
um, not everyone actually had access to God's spirits. It was kind of mediated through this physical structure, okay? So while God is dwelling with them, there is still some space. There is still some distance between them and God's presence. And the prophets talk about a time when that would change, where God's spirit would dwell with all of his people, where this sort of divide between uh, the, 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 the temple and the sort of special place in the middle that not everyone could get to would be abolished, and the temple would kind of expand out and include all, all people um, in, in the holy place. Um, and so when we talk about God's spirit dwelling with us, we're talking about this becoming a reality that what the prophets said has come true. Now, practically speaking, what this means, there's a lot of stuff that that means, right? And we're not going to go through all of the big ideas that kind of come with the Spirit of God dwelling in our midst. But one thing I do want to sort of draw on here today or draw, get you to think about is what this means is that every time that we gather together as a church, okay, it could be in a church on a Sunday morning, it could be in community group. It's certainly true, I think, of what we're doing right now. God's Spirit is in our midst, and because of that, something special is happening. We're hosting God's presence. And even if God's Spirit is undetected or, or is unnoticed, that doesn't mean He's not here. And so what, even if we don't feel like it, I think it, we need to adopt a mindset of treating our gatherings, our time together, as sacred moments, as sacred moments where God's with us. I know it's something I, I want to be better at, and, I, and I'm, trying to, I'm still trying to figure out what that looks like, you know, to, to, to take that responsibility well and not be sort of desensitized to the, the sacredness of our gathering together, right? Of not treating our moments together as something normal because they're not, right? I, I think we are called to have a sort of seriousness or, or soberness or joy, uh, to us. Now, I think we do this well. Actually, there was someone who had come to Rest City for a period of time. They're not at Rest City now. They're kind of interested in faith, um, but weren't, didn't think of themselves as a believer in Jesus. And I was talking to them one time, and they told me, um, so they had, they had been a part of other churches um, in the past, more liberal mainline churches. And kind of comparing Rest City to them, they were, they were like, you actually really take this seriously. And they were kind of surprised by that. Like, you actually think there's something going on. Um, you think there's some real, like, merit to this. Like, there's some power that's in place here. And I, I was just thought that was really cool. I'm glad that you have, have noticed this to be true. Um, but I do think it's still something that we can also get, you know, continue to grow in or continue to understand, like, how do we do this on a regular basis? Like I said, I know I... There are lots of times where I'm, it's not present in my mind when I'm with people from Res City um, that like, hey, this is a sacred moment. And that doesn't mean we got to like act all weird around each other, but, but it, it does mean that we should kind of assign some weight to it. So, um, so again, talk in your groups um, for a few minutes um, and uh, just go off your sheet in there. I think I have a couple questions on the screen. Um, you can ignore that. Um, go off in your sheets. Um, how can we as a church sort of take the presence of God's Spirit in our midst seriously, whether that's on Sundays or other times, right? And, and you can, again, think about ways we do this already um, and think about ways we can maybe go, go further, right? What does it look like for us to do this well, do you think, in your mind? Okay, guys, let's come back together again. I hope you guys are having a good discussion. This one was really interesting. I do think there's a, I hope, I don't know if you guys talked about this in your groups, and I'm not going to really talk about it now um, because we got to keep moving, but I do think there's a, 
a good tension with sort of like taking this seriously, but not thinking we're better than everybody else either. Because I do think that's how you see sometimes the church take this idea where holy is like we're better than everyone else around us. And I don't think that is a good way uh, to think about what this looks like. So it is a good sort of tension to sort of wrestle with, I think. Um, But let's get into the third one here. Um, uh, Paul says, God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. So this is sort of a prophet. It's like, oh, that was a quick turn. Um, But this is Paul kind of giving a sort of, I think, prophetic judgment, right? Basically what he's saying is God isn't in the business of being okay with people coming in and fracturing and tearing down the church, right? So I don't think this is a warning to people outside the church who might like persecute it, right? That's not really the big idea. I think it's more of a warning to people inside the church. If you want to be part of this thing, but you're going to vandalize it, you're going to create division, you're going to intentionally try to make the church just look like everything else around it instead of this holy countercultural space. If you're going to introduce idolatry of some kind into it, where God alone is supposed to be worshipped, good luck with that. That's kind of what Paul's saying. He's not okay with that. God is not okay with that for all these different reasons we've discussed as to what the temple is. And so he's saying God is going to allow that person to reap consequences of it, whether that's in this life or I think the next. But here's the the takeaway, I think. Okay, I don't think the main point, at least for us, is that we should have this fear that like if we do something wrong, we're going to destroy the temple of God at Res City or something like that, okay? If if we thought you were doing that, like we would talk to you, okay? (laughs) I think, again, it's a seriousness, right? It's that God cherishes this temple, even when the temple is really messed up. And so we should too, okay? Because think about this. If you've been following the series at all, if you read 1 Corinthians before, think about who he's talking to here, okay? The Corinthians are not like a model church. Like no one would have written a book about how the Corinthian church is like a church everyone else should try to be like, right? That's not the, the, who this church is. Yet God, or Paul is still saying, you are still God's temple, Okay? Despite all your issues, God still cherishes you. And I think that is something we need to think about. Right? We're going to get frustrated with the church a lot of times. Okay? A lot of people look at the church and they don't, they don't see something special when they look at it. They don't feel like they're looking at something special. Right? And there could be all sorts of, I think, reasons for that. Right? Um, and, and whatever it is. I think a big one today um, is just, a lot of people have been hurt by the church, right? Or they've looked at the church and they have seen it not being, really taking itself seriously. I was at an event recently, that was a couple years ago, I guess now, but a guy named Russell Moore was at it speaking. He's kind of a big, a big thinker, writer, kind of podcaster. Um, and he was talking about how 10 years ago he had conversations with young people and about why they left the church. And he would say, it used to be that the, you know, people said the church, like the moral teaching was too rigorous or they didn't believe the supernatural stuff. And that's why they left the church. He says it's flipped. And when he talks to young people now, a lot more often he hears that the church doesn't believe what it says it does. And they have the receipts to back that up. Right? They don't take themselves seriously as a place where God's presence dwells. And they act, they're, they're, acting like someplace that's not like that and how they treat people and how they aren't being consistent. They'll say they value one thing and then they act totally differently, right? 
And so I think you could at least, you could frame the problem a lot of times as like a profound lack of seriousness, a profound lack of cherishing, you know, our integrity because God dwells in our midst and trying to turn it into something else. And I think this is a call for the church to be in a habit of regularly reflecting, you know, sober self-reflection and reforming itself on a regular basis because of God dwelling in our midst. Okay, so I want you to talk with your groups again here and ask a few different questions. What keeps us from cherishing the church? What would it look like for us to cherish the church even in the midst of its faults and struggles, even when we are frustrated and it doesn't look like anything special is going on there? And how can we take seriously the call to reform the church so it lives up to this cherished calling that it has? All right, guys, let's wrap up some of that conversation here. Appreciate it. It sounds like you guys are having a great discussion, so that's awesome. That's just, that was my main hope, was just create a good, good spot for you guys to talk. Um, let's wrap it up with this last phrase that Paul uses in this passage um, where he says, God's temple is holy. Okay. Now, we've been talking a lot about holiness in this um, series. It's kind of how we framed really the first sermon is because uh, Paul has used this uh, word to describe the Corinthians on a regular basis. Uh, and we kind of talked about the significance of that. We talked about holiness was. Um, we're not going to get into that here again today for you. Um, but let's just think about what it means to be a, a holy temple. Um, so before, before the, the actual physical temple as a building in Jerusalem it required these strict purity codes and rituals that would kind of keep it in a state of holiness, kind of perpetually speaking. Um, and so that is, was true then. We think about now, how, how do we get made holy? What does that look like for us as the temple? Well, we, I think sometimes we might, maybe we you know, even unintentionally think, well, I have to be doing something to keep myself holy or keep our church holy. We have to keep it pure in some way. Um, and not sort of lose our purity. And I, I, that's not really how we're supposed to think about it. Um, that has all, we're supposed to understand that what Jesus has done, what Christ has done, has made us holy and has kept and keeps us in that perpetual state of holiness. Um, he's been the one who's been sacrificed once and for all for us as an offering to God. And Paul says in six, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.11, you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God, by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Okay, the big point is we have been made pure and therefore holy by Jesus. We've been set apart by his sacrifice and his cleansing. And it's a once and a for all act that is supposed to leave us in a perpetual state of holiness so that God's presence can dwell with us and we can become sacred space ourselves. All right, so we don't do anything to make ourselves holy, but I think here's where we do get to come into this. So we get to decide if we're going to take God's holiness given to us seriously, right? And that does mean some obligation for us, right? And we don't always like obligation. We, it, we feel like obligation is an infringement on our freedoms and our indiv individuality, these things that we cherish sort of so much. But if we're going to take this holiness thing seriously, if we're going to get the benefit, I think, of it for ourselves and for our community, it is going to require us to humbly take on this obligation of being hosts for God and truly believing that he's in our midst. 
right? And so that means that we need to be intentional to dedicate all that we do, all of our interactions um, at Res City and I think beyond, not for our own purpose, not so, something we can get out of it, but for God's purpose as hosts of his presence. Um, and I think when we think about how we can make that natural for us, I think you know, in some ways we have to sort of think deeply about it, but also we can kind of come to what Paul is saying here and realize that is actually the key to it. Because identi identity is really powerful. Identity is sort of, I think, where uh, this is going to start to become more natural for us. So um, in his book, in a book called Atomic Habits, I've not read it. Um, Brett Ripley is always recommending it <laughs> to me. Um, I think, Miles, you were going to talk about it in your, yeah, because uh, anyway, but I haven't read it, but Brett convinced me to go do some research on the book. Um, so the author is named James Clear, and, and one of the things that he says in there is that, like, there's a couple ways you can try to produce change, um, and one is to just, like, set goals, and he really argues in the book that that's really not the best way to do it, because that doesn't change who you are, it just is you doing some action, but that doesn't really, like, last, right? It doesn't turn you into the kind of person that continually does this thing at just one time you, you do it. Instead, he says a way more powerful way to produce change is to uh, embrace identity, Embrace a certain identity for yourself, and then watch certain actions flow out of that, okay? So, for example, it gives a few different examples. Um, you know, you could say, I want to have a goal of, like, being really strong, or I want to be a strong, strong person. You could set a goal of, like, I'm going to bench 200 pounds, right? And you just work really hard to do that. And that's great. So now you, now you bench 200 pounds once, but does that really actually mean that you're, you know, a strong person now? Or does that just mean you one time got to bench 200 pounds? Instead, he would say it's more powerful to create an identity of yourself as someone who doesn't miss workouts in the morning, okay? So I always get in the weight room and I lift. And that means over time, I'm going to be able to probably bench more than 200 pounds if I'm consistent in that. Or, for example, he gives another example. Um... I want to be a better friend. That's, a, that's a, a goal you have, right? So to start with that, you think, well, a good friend is someone who stays in touch. So I'm going to become the type of person who stays in touch with people, right? That's who I am. I don't let these relationships sort of go by the wayside. And so I'm going to create small habits where I just call one friend every Saturday. It's not the same friend. It's just a different friend every Saturday. But over time, over three months, he says, you'll stay close to 12 old friends throughout the year. Right? And that starts to become self-reinforcing. You don't even need to think about it over time. Right? And that all comes out of uh, kind of taking on an identity. Right? Well, here's the thing. Paul has already given us the identity. Right? He said we are holy. We are God's temple. We are hosts of God's presence. That's the identity. And that turns us into priests. All right, and that's actually what First Peter says. First Peter says, you are chosen, he's quoting actually something from the Old Testament, you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. All right, so I think there's going to be a lot of power for us and actually, you know, turning us as a church into a place that takes us seriously, that is good hosts to God's presence, that sort of, does all these things that the temple did just by embodying that identity as God's temple, as God's holy place. Because um, when we do, I think habits are going to start to flow out of that. Now, the church does have certain habits. There's a special word for that called liturgy, right? That's, I think those are habits that the church has put in place to try to keep 
keep the church holy. Um, and that's how they're supposed to work. I mean, it doesn't always work that way. It really doesn't work if you don't know what the liturgy, what the identity is pointing back to. I think a lot of people have grown up in very liturgical settings and they've done all of these habits, but they have no clue what identity that the liturgy is supposed to point back to. And I think that is super important that we have a deep understanding of the identity. But if we do, those liturgies, those practices can start to become very, very important. Okay? And so uh, we're, we're, I'm not going to uh, give you time in your group um, to talk here because we're going to move into the breakouts um, now in just a few minutes. But um, I want you to be thinking for the rest of camp and maybe tomorrow when you kind of spend some time alone uh, with, with God, we're going to encourage you to do that. Uh, maybe think a little bit about that. What are some habits or, or liturgies that I could do? Little things but that take this identity seriously and start to become sort of self-reinforcing. Um, and I would love for you to just kind of marinate in that here for the rest of the weekend. Um, I'm going to end with just a, a word of, of comfort um, before we, we break up. Um, we're not doing this alone, okay? One of, the, one of the best parts about this is that, like, it's not just us, right? God, the big idea is God is dwelling with us. God's spirit is in us. And so the idea is that, God's spirit is also working through us to produce this fruit. I think that God has a goal of us being holy people who produce fruit, who are radiating his glory, who are, you know, attractive and unique and set apart in a, in a way that draws people in. That's what God wants us to be. That's what the point of us being a temple is. And so God's spirit being in our midst, if we're, if we're open to that, if we're willing to, um, you know, let God use us and work through us is going to also produce a lot of this stuff too. Okay, so I don't want you to put all this pressure on yourself. I actually want you to enjoy the fact that God is going to do this through us as we take it seriously. Awesome. Uh, can I pray for us and then we can move into the next part of our section here? Okay, great. Lord, thank you that you have um, you have come into our midst, that you dwell, um, your presence dwells with us. Lord, and that is not something we've done, we have not earned that, it's just something that you have said is true, and that might shock us, it might shock other people, Lord. We certainly um, don't live up to that many times, and I don't just speak for us uh, at Res City, but I just mean every one of us, Lord. We can think of ways in which we've fallen short of this great calling, but the fact is that you still dwell with us, Lord. We thank you for your grace that does that, that allows us to be hosts of your presence, and I pray that you would give us wisdom through your spirit so that we can know what it looks like to live that out well, God. I pray that you would help us to internalize this identity um, deeply so that we can truly live it out well, God. And in doing so, not just have the benefit uh, of that for ourselves, but that we can bless the world around us, Lord, by doing that. We, we deeply desire this, God. I know that is our prayer, not just for the people in this room, but for us as a church, as an organization of Res City. Lord, this is a, one of our most fundamental, deepest desires, God. So please make it true in our midst. We, we beg you, we ask you, in the name of Jesus, who has made us holy. Amen. All right.